As I said earlier, Pastor Jeremy is out of town, but we are thankful uh, to have Brother Eric Getch. He is an evangelist that travels across the United States uh, preaching and doing conferences and doing camps and revival services, and we are so thankful. He is a, a friend of, of the camp for many years. He's a friend of ours uh, personally. Uh, I know um, him and Pastor Jeremy uh, went to the same college, and uh, just, uh, just so we're thankful for his family, his ministry, and thankful that, uh, that we, God brought him into our area. He's been a blessing to the valley for so many times that he's come, and I know that it will be no different uh, this, uh, this morning. And so, Brother Eric, come and share with us what God has placed in your heart, and uh, let's give him a round of applause as we welcome him this morning. Thank you, Brother Eric, for your time. Well, amen. Good to see you this morning, and uh, excited about being here today. And uh, man, it's, uh, you guys talk about hot summer mornings. I actually woke up, I thought it was pretty nice today. I, I walked outside, I was like, man, this is nice weather today. I was, you guys should have came out to camp this week. It was not as nice as it was this morning. But uh, anyways, good to see you this morning. Take your Bible if you got it. Go to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter number 18. Gospel of Matthew chapter number 18. And we're going to look at verse number 21, verse number 21. Matthew chapter number 18, verse number 21. where Peter comes to the Lord with a question. It is a privilege to be here. Glad that uh, my family could come as well. My wife and my two youngest boys are actually still at Jeremy's house. Uh, Logan woke up uh, last night with a, um, uh, like, a, what's it called? Like a, a barking cough type thing. And uh, we, we spent a lot of time in Jeremy's pool on uh, Friday and Saturday. So we're hoping that has something to do with it. So anyways, they stayed back so that you wouldn't have a barking cough tomorrow. So you're welcome for that. But my other son, Mason, he would not miss church if I forced him to. So he's here today. So anyways, good, good, good to be here. Matthew chapter 18, look at verse number 21. It says, then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him till seven times? And Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us this morning look at this passage of scripture, and uh, Lord, give us uh, just uh, your wisdom this morning. Fill us with your spirit. Lord, I pray that your word would do exactly what you send it to accomplish this morning, and I pray that we would leave... Uh, uh, um, different than we walked in because we've heard from you. Well, thank you for that. We'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. So my wife, Lexa, she is this avid reader. She uh, just absolutely loves to read. She's always been that way. She'll read somewhere between 75 to 100 books a year, every year. She's just always got her nose in a book. In fact, when she was a kid and she would get in trouble, her parents would take her books away. They'd be like, no more no more books for you. When I got in trouble as a kid, my parents would give me books to read. You know, you, you need to read this. So we're, we're polar opposites in that regard, and uh, it works out well. Uh, we spend a lot of our time traveling to different places, and so uh, while I'm driving, she will be reading. Good use of her time. And I don't really mind that. I actually like to look out and kind of see the different sites. I'm not much of a talker uh, when it comes to uh, uh, travel and things like that. I talk a lot when I'm in front of people, don't need to talk when I'm not in front of people. And so uh, I, I don't mind that at all. She can be reading. I'll be looking out at the different sites, and I, I enjoy seeing the different creation and uh, things like that. But every once in a while, you drive through a, uh, a boring state, you know? 
Uh, looking at you, Kansas, like there's just nothing in Kansas worth looking at. It's just the same thing, mile after mile after mile, and you can see mile after mile after mile. It's all flat as you can imagine. And so on those particular drives, I get a little bit tired of just looking out and seeing the same thing over and over again. And so on those drives, I would like to have a conversation, you know? But you don't want to be the guy that interrupts the good book, you know? And no one likes that guy. And so I have learned to ask the question, how's the book? Now, I got no interest in the book. I could care less what the book's about, how the book is going. I'm just hoping that by asking that question, I can get her to close the book, and we can talk about the book for a little bit, and then we can move on to better subjects, you know, like sports, you know? And so, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, that's kind of my hope. And so we're driving through Kansas. I'm getting bored of the drive. I'm falling asleep a little bit, and she's nose deep in a book. And so I, I finally just gave I said, hey, Lexa, how's the book? I tell you, I immediately regretted asking the question. I have never seen my wife close a book so fast. It, it was like she was anticipating me asking the question. She said, oh, Eric, you have got to read this book. I said, well, we both know that's not going to happen, so why don't you just tell me what it's about? What, what is it called? She said, well, it's called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Well, right away, I'm out, okay? Uh, tidying up is not something I've been known to do. And uh, magic, I was raised Baptist, so magic is of the devil. You know, I don't want anything to do with that, you know? And uh, she said, well, the subtitle is called The Japanese Secret to Decluttering and Organizing Your Life. I said, wow, so what is the secret? What is the secret to decluttering and organizing? Well, she starts thumbing through the book. Like, she's got highlights, you know, that she's gonna go over with me. And she starts reading from the book. The key to cleaning out your space is knowing exactly what you want to keep and then getting rid of everything else. Well, ain't that profound. I'm like, that's the definition of cleaning up. You know, I can't believe we paid someone to write this, you know. Uh, Yeah, you got to decide what you want and get rid of what you don't want. She said, yeah, but how do you decide what you want to keep? Well, you marine the conversation where I said, I don't know, how? How would you ever decide what you would like to keep around your house? She said, well, this is where her system is kind of well known for, is kind of why she's, you know, wrote this book and everything. She said, uh, she says, like, let's say you're going to clean out your clothes. You would get all your clothes out of your closet. You get them all out of your dresser drawers. You'd put them all in a big pile so you could kind of see the enormity of all of your things. And then... One by one, you'd go and you'd pick up each item individually and you'd hold it up and you would ask it, do you spark joy? And if the answer is yes, you keep it. If the answer is no, you get rid of it. Well, I had to pull over on the highway at this point of the drive because I'm just laughing so hard because all I can think about, like this is the picture I've got in my mind, that I'm going to go into my closet, I'm going to grab out my socks and I'm going to hold my socks up and I'm going to say, oh, socks. Do you spark joy? No. I said, Lexa, if I did that, there wouldn't be anything left in my closet. She said, well, at least it'd be clean, you know? And uh, yeah, that's kind of become an inside joke in our family. We, we laugh about it. My, my, my kids are even in on the joke. When they want to buy something from the store, they're like, Dad, can I please get this? It really sparks joy, you know? And uh, anytime my wife wants to buy something, I say, I don't know, babe, not sparking much joy for me, you know? And it's actually sparked a lot of joy in my bank account, you know? I'm, I'm really happy with how this system has gone. But it does make me wonder how how often we hold on to things in our life even though they don't spark joy. You know, we, we, we become attached to emotions like bitterness and anger. 
hurts and offenses get stored up in the closet of our heart, even though they rob us of our peace, even though they don't spark joy, we just can't seem to let them go. And so this morning, I've come as the Apostle Paul, I guess, came to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4 and verse 31 when he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Paul said, you have allowed some hurts and you've allowed some offenses to sow down a root of bitterness in your heart, and it has sprung up all sorts of nasty fruit, anger and clamor and evil speaking and envying and jealousy one toward another. It's all over your life. He said, listen, you've got to hold it up. You've got to realize it's not sparking joy, and by the grace of God, you've got to get it out of your life and instead be kind toward one another forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Simply put this morning, it's time to clean out the closet. And here in Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes to the Lord with a question. And it's a good question. It's a question that had been asked for about 200 years prior to Jesus ever stepping foot onto the soil of Israel. The, the, the question is, is simple. Lord, how often? Shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, how many times do I have to forgive before I'm allowed to get even, right? How many times do I have to give grace before I'm allowed to get revenge? How many times do I have to uh, get, uh, uh, forgive before I'm allowed to uh, hurt him like he's hurt me? And Peter even offers a suggestion. He says, uh, till seven times, now, Peter's being quite generous here. In the conversation that had kind of dominated the synagogues for the past 200 years, most of the rabbis had kind of settled on three times. That after three times, there was a loophole in the Torah that allowed one to hold on to grudges. But Peter doesn't say three times. Peter says seven times. Where does Peter get that number? Well, I think Peter knows he follows a guy named Jesus that does things a little bit differently than other rabbis of the day. I also think Peter was probably in church in Luke chapter 17 when, Peter, when Jesus preaches a whole message about forgiveness. And in Jesus' message, he says that if your brother trespassed against you seven times in a day, you are to rebuke him. And if he is repentant, you are to forgive him. Well, that's, that has quite the implications for us. And first of all, I don't know who you're around that's hurting you seven times in a day. But besides all that, Peter's big takeaway from the message was, so what about the eighth time, right? Like on the eighth time, I allowed to hurt them like they've hurt me. On the eighth time, I allowed to hold on to the grudge. On the eighth time, I allowed to plot my revenge and how I'm going to get them back and make them pay. What about the eighth time? And Jesus' answer here in Matthew 18 stuns Peter, and I believe it ought to stun every single one of us. Look at verse number 22. Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. All right, what, what's Jesus doing here? 
Because I don't think Jesus is giving Peter a math equation to figure out real quick, right? Like, no, Peter, do the math. You still have 483 times to go, okay? So you get your tally book out, you keep track, and when you get to 490, you go get them, buddy. Go make them pay. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I also don't think Jesus is doing what I do with my kids when they use my numbers against me, right? Like, Dad, you said seven more minutes and I could go. No, I didn't say seven minutes. I said 70 times seven minutes, right? Uh, I don't think that's what Jesus is doing either. In fact, I think Jesus is being very intentional here, and I think he's referencing an Old Testament passage of Scripture all the way back in Genesis chapter number 4. Now, Genesis 4 contains the wonderful story of Cain and Abel. That's a great one, isn't it? That's a horrible one. Cain murders Abel, okay? It's the first murder in Scripture. And a little bit of ironic scene at the end of that narrative, if you will, Cain cries out to God, and he says, now that I have taken my brother's life, behold, others will take my life, right? Uh, Others are going to seek to kill me. And so the Lord puts a mark upon Cain's life in an act of compassion. And he says that anyone that kills Cain, well, vengeance will be mine, saith the Lord, sevenfold. Well, after that, we get a genealogy of the life of Cain. Don't you just love genealogies? Yeah, most of us read genealogies like we read the wedding announcements that come in our mail trash can, right? Uh, That's what I do with them. Like, uh, who cares who's getting married, especially with these people? We don't know who these people are. These people lived a long time ago. Who cares that Cain found a wife and they had a kid and then he found a wife and they had a kid? That's called life, right? And yet, out of that genealogy at the end of Genesis chapter four comes this man named Lamech. And Lamech just starts speaking randomly out of the narrative. And he starts speaking randomly out of the narrative in the third person. He says, ye wives of Lamech, hear me. I have slain a young child for my wounding. I have killed a young man for my hurting. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Limech shall be avenged seventy and sevenfold. Well, this is quite the confession from our man named Limech here. He has just confessed to murdering two people, young people, for hurting him or bruising him. In the, in the Hebrew, it's very vague. It's as if they have hurt his ego, Right? And so he has taken their life as payments, right? And really the ode of Limech is, well, Cain gets avenged sevenfold. Limech gets avenged 70 and sevenfold. In other words, I turn vengeance up to the 10th dial, right? Uh, I, I take vengeance very, you don't mess with me. You don't hurt me. You don't make fun of me. You don't even bruise my ego. Because if you do, well, the, the consequence, the payment is your life right? I take the people who have hurt me minorly, and I repay them majorly. Now, you can say what you will about the Ode of Limic, but the Ode of Limic is how our world operates, is it not? Man, you mess with me, you're going to pay for it. You hurt me, I'm going to make sure you feel it. And oftentimes, bitterness is not just about keeping the pain. It's not about ending the pain. It's actually about keeping the pain in motion, is it not? It's about keeping that pain circulating, and oftentimes, it's about keeping that pain escalating, because now we got to hurt them more than they've hurt me. And i got to make sure they pay even more than what, they've have, what they have taken from me. And Jesus speaks into that worldview. And he says, listen, I know you live in a world that says the people who have hurt you minorly deserve major consequences. But I want you to find the people who have hurt you the most and deserve it the least. And I want you to offer them unending forgiveness. In other words, what Jesus says to Peter is, Peter, you never hold on to the grudge. You never get bitter. You always offer forgiveness. Now, we can be honest this morning. 
that's a tough one, right? Like, I mean, 70 times 70, that's great. Paint it on a Hobby Lobby sign, sell it to my mom, she'll buy it, right? But that's not real, Jesus. That's not real. That person hurt us. That person took something from us. That person has cost us sleep, has cost us food. That person has cost us trust. And I want to acknowledge this morning that that you're right. I don't know the depth of pain or the degree of betrayal that you have faced. I don't know the nightmares that perhaps keep you up, tossing and turning at night. But what I do know is that Jesus says in this story that his grace is greater. That what he has done for you is greater than what has been done to you. Now again, that's a tough one to swallow. And so I believe Peter's face kind of looked like our faces this morning, where you're like, okay, if you say so, right? Like, you're the rabbi, but I don't know if I'm buying that. And so what Jesus does next is he tells a parable. Now, a parable is an earthly story that has heavenly meaning. It brings a heavenly perspective to your earthly situations. And in this case, it's going to be a simple story that's going to help us unlock a complex truth, like forgiving your neighbor 70 times, seven times. And what I want to do very quickly for the rest of the time we've got is I want to trisect the parable into three different parts. And hopefully by the time we bring in our Spanish-speaking friends, we will understand how important forgiveness is to God, but we'll also understand how important forgiveness is for us. Can we do that? All right, let's, let's move on, all right? Put your seatbelt on, because I got to go rapid speed, because you guys say you start at 9, but you start at 940, all right? So... Uh, that was a joke. It wasn't 940. <laughs> That's what I call an exaggeration. But it was close. All right. So anyways, look at verse number 23. I've labeled the first part of this an accounted debt, an accounted debt. It says, therefore, this is Jesus, therefore is the kingdom of heaven, verse 23, likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. But when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Okay, so we're introduced to this king of a kingdom. We don't know a lot about him, but apparently he is generous. He has loaned out money. But we are kind of brought into the story on collection day, right? Like he's opening the books. He's making sure all the money that has gone out is coming back in probably with interest, right? And I'm guessing towards the top of the list, he finds this servant that owed him 10,000 talents. Now that sounds like a lot of money, uh, but the truth is, we don't know what a talent is, and so we don't know if that's a lot of money. Now, money is hard to transfer over, especially because money is always fluent, but especially when it comes to a talent, because a talent was, an amount, was not an amount of money, but it was the sum weight of all of your money, okay? And so scholars are all over the place on what a talent was or wasn't. I've picked a median of five sources that I like to use and trust, and so some scholars will say it's more. There's a few that might say it's less, but... But, but there will be some that will say it's a lot more than this. But, but a, median, a median estimate of what a talent was would be, in our day, about $36,000, okay? That's one talent. This guy owes 10,000 talents. 
Uh, that's $360 million, okay? Now, this is an astronomical number. When, when Jesus would have said this, his audience no doubt would have laughed because this is 10 times the national budget for the Roman Empire at the time, okay? Uh, yeah, th- there's no way a king is loaning out this kind of money, and there's no way a servant is ever blowing through this kind of money. But the point that Jesus is making is clear. This guy owes a debt he can never pay back. It would take him 300 lifetimes to pay back this debt. He is never paying back the debt. And really the application that Jesus wants his audience to get is that this is how you are viewed when you stand before a holy God. That you owe a debt to God that cannot be paid back. Your sin stacks up against you. The Bible says in Psalms 14 that the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did good and seek God and understand, but they are all together become filthy. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, Paul quotes that passage of scripture in Romans chapter three to let us know it's still true then as it is uh, for us today. When he says, as is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all going to become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Then Paul starts quoting from a bunch of other Psalms, and he's kind of pulling them all together as if he's listing the charges against mankind. He says, their throat is an open sepulcher. With their mouth, they have used the sea. The poison of asp is under their tongue, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are quick to shed blood. Destruction and misery in their way, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of the Lord before their eyes. And we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world might become guilty before God. Our sin condemns us. We have been found guilty in the court of law. And God sees all, he knows all, and there is nothing that can be hid from his account. For Hebrews tells us, neither is there any creature that is not manifested in his sight. The eyes of the Lord, Proverbs tells us, are in every place beholding the evil and the good. He sees all, he knows all, and there's nothing that can be hid from his account. So you might be able to hide the text messages from your parents or your spouse, but God sees those text messages. You might be able to clear the web browser off of the computer, but God sees those sites you look at. God knows about the tests you cheated on. He knows about the paper you turned in that was plagiarized. God knows about it all. God knows about the pride in your heart. He knows about the lust that's in your mind. He knows it all. There is nothing that can be hid from his account. We have all wronged God. There's an accounted debt. But I want you to know, secondly, there's an amazing declaration. An amazing declaration. Look what happens in this story. It's going to take several twists and turns throughout. And this first twist is beautiful. Look at verse 26. It says, The servant, therefore, fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Now, knowing what we know about what this man owes, that's a very, that's a very silly thing to ask, or a very silly thing to say, right? There's no way he's paying back all the debt. And yet, in spite of the king knowing there's no way he's paying back all the debt, look at what the king does. It says, then the Lord of that servant, this is verse 27, was moved with compassion, and he loosed him, and he forgave him the debt. 
Now, the word loose there is one of the three Greek words we translate elsewhere in the New Testament as the word grace. So this king is going to do for this man what he cannot do for himself. He's going to loose him of the debt, but then he's also going to forgive him. So the word forgive, it literally means to open the hand or to let go. So, so, So note what's happening here. He's not extending the note. He's not making it interest only payments. No, no, no. He is eliminating the debt entirely from the book. As significant as the debt was, the grace of the king was greater, right? As significant as the debt was, the grace of the king was greater. And that man walked out that day with a weight off his shoulders, a weight that had crushed him, a weight that had broken him. It now was removed. He got new life that day, all because the king gave it to him. But notice, someone absorbed the debt that day. Someone took on the debt of 10,000 talents that day. Right? If there was a CEO of a company here in the valley that came out and said, uh, like, like Miss Linda, for instance, she comes out, she says, hey, I figured out a client owed me $360 million, but I just decided, eh, forget about it, right? We would all look at Miss Linda and we'd say, man, with all due respect, you're an idiot, right? Like, you just bankrupt your business. Like, what, what are you doing here? And yet, that's exactly what's happening in the story. He is bankrupting the kingdom, so to speak, so that he can give compassion and grace to one man. Now, listen, if you don't know how that relates to you on a Sunday morning, I got great news for you. In fact, I got good news for you. I got what the Bible would call gospel for you this morning, because that's what Jesus does for us. He sees us in our sin. He sees that there's no way we could ever earn or work our way to God. And so he comes down to us. And he was born of a virgin. He lived 33 and a half years of perfection. And he went to a cross willingly. Why? So that he could do for you and me what we could not do for ourselves. He gave us grace. And on that cross, he pulled up on those nails and he cried, hey, Father, forgive them. Let them go, right? Put their sin on my account. They know not what they do. And as he pulled up on those nails and he cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was at that moment that I understand it to be and believe it to be true that Jesus Christ took your sin, my sin, past, present, future sins of the entire world and he bore them on his back. And he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God. And when he pulled up on those nails and cried to telestai, a business transaction term that was stamped on papers of debt, meaning that the debt was paid in full. You can't add to it. We can't ask you for any more money. You can't send any more checks in. It has been paid in full. And it's translated beautifully in our Bibles with three little words. It is finished. Jesus saying, listen, I have paid the debt you owe. Your sin has been paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you can take the blood out of the Bible. You can take the blood out of the songs. You can take the blood out of the sermon, but you will never take the blood out of salvation because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. There is no forgiveness without the blood of Jesus. And you get salvation for free, but it costs Jesus everything. He gave his life for thine. Now, I don't know what you want to call that, but I call it amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a poor sinner like me. One of my favorite songs growing up was Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. I think it's the, uh, 
third verse that says, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What could avail to wash it away? Look, there's flowing a crimson tide so that whiter than snow you might be today. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that can pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. Listen, your sin may be great this morning. I promise you, his grace is greater. There's an, uh, there, there's an accounted debt. There's an amazing declaration. Then would you notice finally with me this morning, there's an atrocious display. There's an atrocious display. Because as much as I would love the story to be over, it's not over. Because Jesus is not just telling the story to remind Peter that he has been forgiven. No, he's telling Jesus, Jesus is telling the story to Peter and to us this morning by way of preservation and inspiration of the importance it is for us to forgive, right? Not just that he's been forgiven, but how important it is for him to forgive. And so the story goes on. It has another twist. This one's more disturbing. It says, but the same servant went out and found, right? He searched out one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, Now, a pence was a day's worth of wages, and so a hundred pence would literally be a hundred days' worth of work. And nowhere does Jesus say that's not significant. Nowhere does Jesus say that's not a big deal. Uh, No, in fact, if you went three months without work, I'm guessing you'd be hurting a little bit, right? It would stretch you financially a little bit. Um, Jesus is just stating facts. This man owes him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him, and he took him by the throat, saying, pay me that thou Okay, so so you got to see this. Okay, he has just been forgiven 10,000 talents, and he leaves that throne room, and he's got to be thinking, by the skin of my teeth, like, what a guy. And he gets out in the field, and he opens up his book, and he starts looking out in the field, and he goes, Victor, Victor, good to see you. Come here, Victor. Victor, get over here. Wow. Is it sunny in here or what? Okay, come here, Victor. Come here. Oh, Victor. Good to see you. Man, we had a good week at camp, didn't we? Man. Wow. Let's go to this dark alley where no one's watching, Victor. Wow. Victor, it is so good to see you. How was your weekend? You said you worked? You worked this weekend at Oakley? Yeah? You make some money this week? Yeah? Well, pay me that thou owest, right? He grabs him by the throat. He says, pay me that thou owest. Now listen, I don't know about you, but I wasn't expecting that on a Sunday morning. And he grabs Victor. He says, pay me that thou owest. Now, we got to figure out what's going to happen, all right? So don't go anywhere. All we've established is you owe me money. I like how this is turning out for me. Sparking a lot of joy, Jesus. Come on. All right. Look what happens. The Bible says in verse 29, his fellow servant, that's Victor, he fell down at his feet. No, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. He fell down at his feet, and he besought him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Does that sound familiar? Well, it ought to sound familiar. It's exactly what he just said at the foot of the king. So, so please note this, because this is important. It's the same plea for grace. He is now being asked for the same grace he has just received. Just like the king did for him what he couldn't do for himself, he is now being asked to do for Victor what Victor cannot do for himself, right? And just like the king had to let him go, he's now being asked by Victor to, very specifically, let me go, right? Okay, let me go, right? 
And look what happens. The only difference in this scenario, it's the same plea for grace. The only difference is that it's to a much lesser extent, right? No, I mean by that is that 300 lifetimes worth of work is more than three months worth of work. Are we on the same page there? 10,000 talents is greater than 100 pence. So it's the same plea for grace to a much lesser extent. And look what happens. It says, but he would not. Verse 30, and he would not. He would not offer him grace. He would not let him go. He would not loosen the grip around his throat, but he instead chose to cast him forth into prison till he should pay the debt. Okay, so, so look what happens. He, he, he's being asked for grace. He's saying, please give me grace. Please have patience with me. Please let me go. He refuses to. He refuses to forgive. And instead, he cast him into prison until he should pay the debt. All right, so you can go sit in prison again. Put your sunglasses back on, apparently. Now, listen, I read this story, and I get a little bit angry because I am the first servant in the story, Okay? Anybody that's done an honest reading of this story as a person who has believed in Jesus understands that they are the first servant. We have been forgiven by God and we have owed a debt to God we could not pay. Uh, Now, listen, if you're me, I tried to pay it. I tried to pay it with my self-righteousness. I tried to pay it with my memory work. I tried to pay it with my service to the Lord. I was so faithful in Awana clubs growing up, man. I got all the badges, all the things printed on it. I tried to pay for my sin, and yet when God saved me, I realized none of that stuff, all those works of righteousness were actually added on to the works of iniquity that I did. And so, man, when, when Jesus rescued me, he saved me out of all of that, and, and, and I so clearly see myself as this first servant. But then the guy that represents me goes and chokes out Victor. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be that guy because I happen to like Victor. I think he's a nice kid. Now, I know some of you are like, choke him harder, but that's not me, all right? I like Victor, right? And so, man, I get angry and I start thinking, well, I hope the king finds out about this. And that's exactly what happens. The next verse says, so his his fellow servants saw it was done. They were very sorry. And this is a very important detail here. They came and they told unto their Lord, all that was done. So the king now knows everything that has happened. He knows what the man owed this man. He knows what the man did with the man, right? Like he knows that that man is sitting in prison because of a refusal to forgive, right? And so look what happens. He gets called back into the throne room. And I start licking my lips a little bit, right? It says in verse 32, then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, oh, thou wicked servant. And I'm like, yes, come on, get this guy. He says, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Now listen, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to know that's a rhetorical question, okay? Yeah, the answer is you should have, but it's too late for you, bucko, right? Like, get rid of him, right? And look what happens in verse 34. It says, his Lord was wroth. He delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. And man, I wanna close my Bible right there and I wanna just say, hallelujah, we got him. Justice is served, right? Woo! But then I sit down and I realize there's another verse left. Like after 34, we don't go into chapter 19. Jesus has more to say. And look what Jesus says in verse 35. He says, so likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you, Eric Getch, 
if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. And suddenly, I find myself saying, come on, Lord, give him another chance, right? Give him some grace here. I'm sure he'll forgive now. I'm sure, I'm sure he's got it right now. Why is that? Why is it that when this is some no-name servant in Scripture, I got no problem being like, yeah, to the tormentor's den. Woo, justice. But when it's me, it's like, oh, come on, Lord. Give him some more grace. Why is that? You know why? Well, because for me, I have this worldview that says mercy for me, justice for everyone else. I deserve mercy. <laughs> you clearly deserve justice, right? I've earned mercy somehow. You clearly have not, right? Uh, oh, officer, huh. was I really going 75 in a school zone? I am so sorry. <laughs> uh, I was on my way to church, man. I'm going to camp, excited about it. Yeah. Uh, have some mercy on me. Right? But when the Lamborghini cuts me off, and there's a lot of them around here, I've noticed, right? When they cut me off, I'm like, hey, pull him over, strip his license, impound his, actually give me his car. That sounds like justice. Like, that would be great, right? Justice for you, mercy for me. And Jesus, I'm telling you, he speaks into that worldview and he says, uh uh-uh. uh, that is not the way it works. He says, you cannot receive my grace and then refuse to give it to others. Now, listen, he says, if you have had your sins forgiven, then you no longer get to count the sins of others. If you have received, if you have been a recipient of God's grace, you now have the responsibility to go out and give that grace, even to the people who have hurt you the most and deserve it the least. You say, ooh, Eric, I was all on board with what you were saying until you said that last part. Yeah, I think we should give grace, but not to the people that hurt me. No, no, Eric, uh, they, they're, they're not sorry. They've not learned their lesson. They don't deserve it. That wouldn't spark joy, right? I'll just tell you, we don't forgive people because they deserve it, they've earned it, or they're sorry. That's not, why, that's not why the Bible commands us to forgive. In fact, remember our verse in Ephesians 4? Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. In other words, Paul says you forgive because you've been forgiven. You forgive because one day on Calvary, you believe Jesus died not just for your sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And when he shed his blood, he didn't just cover your sins, but he actually covered the sins that were done against you. And so because you have been forgiven, you now go out and you forgive. You emulate the forgiveness you have received to the ones who need it the most from you. You forgive like you've been forgiven. You say, yeah, but they owe me something. They owe me an explanation. They owe me a marriage. They owe me a childhood. They owe me a lot of money. Say, Eric, that's not fair. You're right, it's not fair. It's grace. And you'll never be asked to give more than you have already received from God. That's what we're learning in this parable. That the grace we have received from Jesus is greater than the grace we're being asked to give to those around us. And so I would say the next time that the emotions trigger us of anger and bitterness, that we need to hold them up. We need to realize that they're not sparking joy and we need to get them out of our life. And we need to, instead of remembering what was done to us, intentionally turn our mind to what Jesus did for us. Now, before we go home, we got to clarify something. 
Because if we don't, we're going to leave with a messed up view of God, and God seems important, don't want to mess him up, all right? So this, this passage of scripture, especially the ending of this passage of scripture, has been used to teach all sorts of weird things, all right? So I want to clarify what's going on here at the end of the story. When Jesus speaks parables in the New Testament, we don't always get a so likewise statement. In other words, there's not always a clear reason Jesus told the story or a clear application to the story. Oftentimes, he'll tell a story and he'll just let it linger. He'll, he'll leave it unfinished and he'll leave it for his audience to wrestle with the meaning, why he told it, what, what, what it all means for today. But in, in Matthew chapter 18, we get a so likewise statement. And so because we get one, it's very important we pay attention to it. Jesus says in verse 35, so likewise, this is the point, so likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Now, if I was going to summarize that, I would say Jesus is saying, Jesus wants us to learn that what happens to the man in the story will happen to us if we refuse to sincerely forgive those who have wronged us in this life. Okay. So what happens to the man in the story? This is where all the confusion happens. Verse 34, his Lord was wroth and he delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. Now there's two ways we can read this verse. The first way and probably the most popular way that I have heard it before is that his Lord was wroth. Oh, can we keep the verse on there just so we can see it? His Lord was wroth and he delivered him that would be the servant to the tormentors till he, the servant, should pay all that was due unto him, the king. And if we read it that way, how much does this guy owe the king? Yeah, 300 lifetimes. And how long is he going to be in the tormentors then? Yeah, we would say forever. If we were going to translate that, we would say everlasting life. We would call that judgment, hell, brimstone, fire, all those wonderful Christian words we love, right? Okay, and, and this is what we have based our community on. Like, come to the church that talks about fire and brimstone. Anyways, so, like, <clears throat> that was a short little rabbit trail. But the point is, if we read the verse that way, I've got massive problems. Because if that's the way we want to read the verse, well, then this man's sin, this man's debt was never forgiven. It was never paid for by the king. No, it was just put on hold until he did something he didn't like right? And the moment he did something the king didn't like, he pulls him back in, puts it all back on his shoulders. Let me just tell you, if that's the way you read the verse, and that's, and that's what you think Jesus did with your sin, well, I got news for you. You've just made the death of Jesus of no significance. Like, if Jesus' death just put all of our sin on hold temporarily, and the moment we mess up, or the moment we refuse to forgive someone because of the hurt they've done to us, boom, back to hell you go. Like, my friends, we might as well not celebrate Easter. The resurrection means nothing. Jesus died for nothing. No, when Jesus died, you know the song, he paid it all. He cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. That sin never comes back around, right? And man, I tell you, the theological hoops I have heard people try to jump through to try to justify this. Well, Jesus is telling a parable. And so he is essentially allowed to lie for dramatic effect. Really? Jesus is allowed to be like, if you don't forgive, you're going to hell. Not really, but I'm hoping if I say that, I'll fear him into obedience. Come on, folks. No, everything Jesus says has to line up with everything else he says. It all has to align. So there's got to be another way to read this verse, and there is another way to read this verse. It says, his Lord was wroth. He delivered him, the servant, to the tormentors, till he, the servant, should pay all that was due unto him, the servant. 
And what is due unto him, the servant, in this passage of scripture? A hundred pence. And what did he do with the man that owed him a hundred pence? He cast him into prison. He's sitting right there, right? In prison with his sunglasses on, right? He's in prison, right? Okay, so listen, the king knows that, does he not? Yeah, the servants came, told the Lord all that had happened. So the king knows the judgment that was, what, 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 what was released, and he brings in the man. He says, listen, you have been forgiven, but you're refusing to live in that forgiveness. And so he says, until you learn to live in the freedom of forgiveness, well, you're going to be bound in a prison of your own making. He says, you're going to sit in this tormentor's den until you learn how to forgive, until you learn how to let him out. Until you let him out, you're going to be locked in. And I love this. The king puts him in a prison, but he gives him the key out at the very same time. And the other reason I love this is because that's exactly what bitterness does, my friends. Bitterness binds you in a prison of your own making. And you think you're hurting them when in reality, you're hurting. You're the one who can't sleep. You're the one whose relationships are infected by mistrust. And and, and it's like that. You probably already think that bitterness is that poison we drank hoping it kills somebody else. And we think all the effects are going on them, when in reality, all the side effects are on us. We're the ones who can't sleep. We're the ones whose anger and clamor and evil speaking, the fruit is evident in our life. And so we've got to dig down deep this morning. We've got to pluck out that root, hold up the hurt, hold up the offense, and ask yourself, is holding on to this really making me a more joyful Christian, a more peaceful Christian, a more gentle? Is this, is this hurt I'm holding on to bearing the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Or is it bearing the nasty fruit of bitterness in my life? Ask yourself honestly, and then by the grace of God, get it out of your life. Get it out of your life. I believe there's life-changing power in forgiveness when we grasp this. When we understand what forgiveness truly is, that forgiveness is setting someone free and then realizing that that person is you. You're the one who sets free. It's not that your pain goes away. It's not that you forget what happened to you. No, forgiving and forgetting are two different things. And it's not that reconciliation immediately happens. No, reconciliation is a two-way street. Both parties have to walk down it. But forgiveness is a one-way street. You walk down, you choose to walk that path. Forgiveness is releasing what was done to you and giving it to God and saying, I'm going to live in the freedom of the forgiveness I have been offered. Why? Because I have been forgiven. I now forgive. Because I have received abundant grace, I now give abundant grace to the people who deserve it the least. So Peter says, how, how often shall my brother sin against me? Seven times or 70 times seven? And Jesus says, not seven times but 70 times seven. Peter, you never hold on to bitterness. Why? Because there's life-changing power in the forgiveness of the grace you have received. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you this morning for the truth, for the truth of forgiveness, for the truth that on Calvary you covered our sin. So I pray we wouldn't be the people that do harm to one another. I pray we would be people who choose to offer grace like we have received your grace. May we hold it up. May we realize it doesn't spark joy. And may we, by the grace of God, get it out of our lives. Choosing rather to think of what you've done for us than what's been done to us.
Father, we ask that you would just continue to work in our hearts and our midst. Simply this morning, I'd like to say if something Brother Eric touched on or something in your life, you know God has been working in regards to forgiveness, in regards to dealing and letting go of bitterness. And perhaps tonight you'd say, or this morning I should say, you'd say, Brother John, um, just, just I want God to know and I want you to know that God is working in my life. This morning, I'd like to just raise my hand so that I can signify that God is working in my life this morning. Would you just raise your hand? I'd like to know that I can pray for you. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Many, many hands. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do the work in every life. I raise my hand with ease. And I pray, Father, that you would just help us with your strength, with your spirit. Look in the mirror of your word as it was presented to us to examine our lives and to be honest and real with you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.